Welcome to another edition of the College Faith Podcast, sponsored by Global Scholars. This is Stan Wallace, your host, and this episode continues my sporadic series on the various fields students may choose to study while in college. My guest today is Dr. Hannah Eagleson, who studied the Great Books Program at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. She went on to earn a PhD in Renaissance Literature from the University of Delaware. Since then, she's written study guides to The Lord of the Rings and to works of C.S. Lewis and Dorothy L. Sayers. She also develops programming to support Christian scholars as they follow Christ and love their neighbors, both with Global Scholars, the Chesterton House, which is a Christian study center at Cornell University, and the American Scientific Affiliation, a Christian scholarly society in the sciences. Hannah, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Oh, it's so good to get a chance to talk about great books and programs that help students explore the great books. So let's dive right in. What are the great books, first of all, before we even start talking about programs that that read and study these books? Yeah, it is one of those categories that you can define in different ways, uh, but usually what it means in the U.S. anyway is sort of a core of classic texts, often from the European tradition, although there are certainly authors like Augustine who were writing in Africa and have been powerful in a number of different traditions over time. And it often starts about with Plato and ends about with Flannery O'Connor in the 1950s. Uh, But there are lots of different ways to configure it. You know, there are programs that, that define it slightly differently. But the idea is you're getting a core of books that many people have responded to over time, often in a particular tradition like the European one that gives you a wide preparation to go into a lot of different fields and read the classics of that field. And I actually got them on my bookshelf behind me, the um, the series that was uh, that came out of the University of Chicago, the Britannica series. I believe yes, it is. Yes, edited uh, by Mortimer Adler, I Mortimer believe. Mortimer Adler, that's right. That's right. Found it very, very helpful when I need to find uh, some thought that runs through the history of the conversation. And I can find where Plato talks about it or where Freud talks about it or where Aquinas talks about it or whoever. Yeah, that series is amazing in that way. I've used many volumes from it over time. Yeah. So what are these great books programs then that have developed and 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 help students study these texts? Yeah, so I think probably the most well-known one in the US is St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland, uh, where I went for my master's degree. So it's been doing this program since 1937, I believe, and has done an extensive undergraduate program around it and then a grad program. Uh, This is an aside, but we're also located right across from the Naval Academy. And Mm. once a year, we play croquet, as far as I know, (laughs) our only big sports rivalry. I'm happy to say we have a decent win record. Uh, Uh Yeah, so that's probably the uh, sort of most well-known and kind of prototypical one in the U.S. Uh, St. John's, even though it sounds like a religious school, is actually secular at this point, although you read a lot of classics from the Christian tradition. And then there are a number of other schools that have woven in at least some sort of great books core where you can take maybe two years of great books. And many of those do come from the Christian perspective. I believe Baylor and Biola both have programs along Mm. those lines. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I knew a number of people going through the Biola program when I was out there doing my master's and they were, they were always speaking very highly of it. Uh, I do wonder if there's any difference that you see between the great books programs in public universities or secular private universities as compared to those at, say, a Biola that's explicitly Christian in orientation? Yeah, I'd say it does vary some uh, from program to program, but generally many of the ones that are in secular schools are kind of coming at it from a general good preparation for citizenship approach. Okay. The idea kind of is to bring a lot of people together around a core of uh, kind of a classical canon that 
hopefully could prepare you to talk well with each other about civic life. So at St. John's, mm-hmm. for instance. So you, you used a, an important literary term that I want to make sure our listeners understand, the word canon. Define yes. it for us. Yes, uh, also a very complicated term. But basically, mm-hmm. um, you know, we speak of the canon of scripture as mm-hmm. those books that the church has decided are inspired by God and are going to guide us. Uh, and it, of course, we're not saying that literary classics are directly inspired by God in the same way at all, but there's sort of a similar concept of institutions that care about education have decided this is a core set of texts that's really mm-hmm. helpful to know for life okay. in your society, basically. Good, thanks. I think a lot of the Christian programs are a little bit more focused on that sort of training specifically for being a good follower of Christ, right? Which makes sense. Uh, Now, hopefully that also in many cases will include being a good citizen of your time and place too. So it's not that they don't think about those questions, but they think about them a little bit more in the context of what would it mean to develop Christian virtues as we read these books? Right. What would it mean to think about our connection to Christ in this context? So varies, you know, place to place, but I'd say that's kind of one of the main differences. Sure, that makes sense. Well, Hannah, how did you get interested in great books programs in the first place? You know, I think it was actually having a bit of a moment uh, when I was a teenager. I was maybe the second generation of homeschooled students in the U.S. when it sort of revived in the late 70s, early 80s. And part of that revival was an interest in homeschooling and in Christian schools, in kind of the classical tradition. Mm, Much mm -hmm. of that went back to some engagement with an essay by Dorothy L. Sayers, uh, who was a mystery novelist and a friend of C.S. Lewis. and One of the Inklings, right? So I like to think of her that way. uh, And I've actually published Sayers' study guides as part of Ah, an Inkling series. Okay. Um, I guess technically she didn't attend meetings because it was an all-male group. Uh, Uh. So as a woman, she didn't go, but she did correspond with several of the Inklings. And I would say there was a a strong influence both ways on Uh, their thought. Uh, So she gave a talk about the value of classical modes of education in, I don't know, the late 40s or early 50s, maybe, in the UK. And in the talk, she pretty much says... This probably won't happen, uh, but wouldn't it be nice if we discovered some of these modes of education from the medieval past? Uh, And strangely enough, in those 70s and 80s and 90s, a bunch of Americans decided to rediscover them uh, through her essay. So it's, it's one of those interesting examples of how thinking about a thing, however improbable, can really launch something you didn't expect over time. Yeah. What what are those those modes of education and how do they relate to the great books? Yeah. So Sayers was talking especially about these large groupings of educational modes, I guess you could call them, that were popular in medieval and some Renaissance education, uh, which can be shorthanded as grammar, logic and rhetoric. And again, they're very big terms that could mean a lot of things, but kind of the way Sayers explains them is grammar, uh, she sort of identified with the early years of education, maybe till a student is 10 or 12. And she said, this is kind of about learning the essential facts that you need in life to just put things together, right? Mm -hmm. Historical dates, scientific facts, things like that learning how to do math in a proficient way, becoming numerate, so to speak. Uh, And then logic is, she kind of recommended as for what we would probably call something like middle school or junior high and kind of that roughly 12 to 15 age range. Uh, And she talked about this as learning to make good arguments and learning uh, traditions of logic and things like that. In other words, take, taking the the raw material, so to speak, the things learned in the grammar phase, and figuring out how to how to relate those together to form conclusions that follow from what we know, right? Exactly. Yep. Using that uh, foundation that you've built, and then she talked about rhetoric, uh, which has traditionally meant specifically modes of persuasion in language, uh, but mm. she also kind of says. 
rhetoric is sort of about putting all of these things you've learned together as a whole into something that's creative. So she also talks about this as a moment uh, kind of in the age range of something like 15 to 20 when students could be really thinking about their whole vocation in light of the facts they've learned and the logical skills they've learned and the skills they're learning to express themselves Mm. uh, and where you're kind of imagining what will your vocation be like in a creative way based on all that knowledge and skill that you've accumulated. And so that's kind of how she talks about it. And was it she who talked about how that maps to the capacities of children developmentally during these different phases? Or is that somebody else? He did talk about that. Yeah, it's a fairly extensive part of the essay, as I recall. Mm-hmm. So I'll give a little caveat here. I absolutely adore Sayers. She is one of my 100% favorite authors of all time. Um, we didn't know as much about child development when she was writing this as we do now. So I'm not sure she's 100% accurate to our current state of knowledge there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that you know, it's it's nice to see how she's thought about mm-hmm. those developing stages, uh, yeah. especially I think that last one of, oh, OK, as you are in what we would call high school and you are thinking about college life or whatever is next for you, you can kind of use the skills and knowledge you've accumulated to mm-hmm. develop ideas about, oh, OK, what should my vocation look like? Who do I want to be in the world? How do I want to live mm-hmm. that out? So I think that's where that's especially helpful in her essay. Yeah, sure. So how does that relate to the great books then? So it's interesting. Many great books programs don't actually teach those things specifically as big categories. uh, But the essay was one of the huge stimuli to launching the great books movement in the U.S. at the in Christian high schools and homeschools and was kind of how I got interested in it because people were talking a lot about this at the time that I was a teenager and was thinking about these questions. And so that's, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's what's referred to then as the classical Christian education approach? exactly. The classical Christian education approach Mm -hmm. was kind of taking off uh, at the time. Now there are longer secular traditions of great books uh, that Mm -hmm. Mortimer Adler was participating in and so on Mm -hmm. as well. And that's part of the, especially the college landscape for them in the U.S. Uh, But how I got interested in it was partly just my parents uh, loved books and taught us to love books. Uh, We would get book catalogs in the mail and just circle everything that we wanted. And my parents would do their best to buy a large percentage of them (laughs) uh, once or twice a year. We'd just get a big box in the mail. They Mm. often took us to bookstores. It was a really delightful part of my growing up. And so it was kind of natural then that when the people around me got very interested in the classical tradition, I was excited about it too. And it typically goes with those models of learning from the Middle Ages that Sayers is pointing to, getting to know a canon of great books or a collection of great books that have been important over time. Uh, And so depending which program you're signing up for, you may or may not get a formal introduction to medieval modes of grammar, logic, and rhetoric updated for the present. But in pretty much any of them, you will get this sense of, all right, we have a collection of books that we think are really worth your time and worth our communal time to talk about in a seminar format and to connect around to share our ideas and interpretations. Mm -hmm. And by the way, it is interesting you know, in our current narrative, we talk about the medieval period as being so archaic and out of touch and backwards. And and uh, you're actually painting it in a very different perspective, which I actually very much agree with. But uh, might you say a word about that and how we tend to have a misunderstanding of the that period of intellectual history? Yeah, I do think it's sadly neglected often in modern life and kind of by modern Christians, too, which is is sad because there's so much rich theology that was written in the time period. And there are such interesting approaches to thinking about how faith might connect to other parts of life. Uh, 
one of my favorites. So my PhD is in Renaissance literature, just a little bit later. And I can't remember mm -hmm. if the thing I'm about to tell you started in the Middle Ages or the Renaissance. They do sort of blur together. Exactly. One of my favorite short examples is when you look at early recipes, uh, they didn't have very precise ways of keeping time for many people. So, you know, you can't press a timer. So they'll say things like, uh, say the Lord's Prayer 10 times while you whip this cream, and that will be about the right <laughs> amount of time. <laughs> so there are some delightful everyday connections uh, between faith as a, a cultural paradigm uh, and, and a real lived belief that people experience and just very practical things in medieval and Renaissance reflection. And of course, just a really rich treasure trove mm -hmm. of theological reflection, which is one reason that I loved great books so much. It was wonderful to encounter authors from all sorts of perspectives, but there was a, a very deep connection to the Christian tradition mm -hmm. in reading Augustine, and Aquinas, and later Reformation writers, and sure. really satisfying. Sure. We will return to the show in just a moment, but first a word from our sponsor. Do you have a child, relative, or friend preparing for or attending college? What they need most are Christian professors who can help them learn to love God with their hearts and minds during these impressionable years. Global Scholars equips Christian professors to be there for them and walk with them during their years in college. Please visit www.global-scholars.org to learn how you can help equip Christian professors to show Christ's love on a campus near you and around the world. Please also check out the other podcast Stan and Dr. J.P. Moreland do together, Thinking Christianly. Whereas this College Faith podcast focuses more on the practical questions of thriving during the college years, the Thinking Christianly podcast is all about the ideas that shape the university, students, our broader culture, and the world. Visit thinkingchristianly.org or download episodes on your favorite podcast platform. And now back to College Faith. Well, let's get to the specifics. How many of these programs are there? Where are there? I'm sure you don't know all of them, but you've named it. I think you've named three, Biola and Baylor. And then, of course, St. John's, which uh, is the paradigm case. Where else can students find these? You know, it's a little, I'm not. 100% sure off the top of my head, uh, because some schools kind of alternate between having them and not having them. So, But I believe that Brown and Columbia both have uh, kind of the option to do a two-year core in something okay. like this or a similar program along those lines. Um, I know there's Thomas Aquinas College, uh, which is a great book suit. So, College in the Catholic tradition. I believe it's based in California. And listeners can probably find them, right? By just Googling great books programs. Would that absolutely bring it up? Yeah, yeah. That okay. should really uh turn up a lot of them. Okay, good. Well now how, how about your experience? Tell us what benefits you receive from doing this program at, yeah. uh, at St. John's. I think one of the really wonderful things about it was that it's a deep engagement with the Christian tradition and from an angle that I hadn't experienced in the same way before. Mm. So I grew up in church. I grew up with a family that loved and cared about scripture. Uh, so we, you know, talked often about it and read it often. And that was really a wonderful experience. Uh, but actually reading scripture at St. John's with people who didn't necessarily agree with it mm. really deepened my own interpretations of it, you know, as, as someone who deeply believes that it's God's word to us. And I think um, one moment that stands out to me is you read some of the Hebrew Bible and some of the New Testament in the semester on philosophy and theology at St. John's. When we read Job, uh, one of my colleagues in the class who was agnostic and, you know, was just approaching the text as a, a respectful reader who saw it mm -hmm. as just a literary text and a historical document, mm -hmm. uh, was thinking about the end where God turns up and, and talks in this awe-inspiring language about the cosmos and his creation. And my colleague summarized that as, 
I think what this part of the text is trying to tell us is there is a design. Here's the designer. Mm. And I thought, wow, that's so succinctly put. It really illuminates, uh, you know, what I think the text is doing there. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, I had sort of missed that really big picture point about it, because I'd often Mm. talked about the book with people who were thinking about very specific theological paradigms, and they're important, don't get me wrong. But having a really good reader who has a different approach to it talk to you about it often just illuminates things that are true about the text. And I think that spirit of respectful approach across a wide range of perspectives to the texts really opened up my understanding of scripture, uh, which was a remarkable experience. Mm -hmm. So that's one. I would say a second thing that I've just found so helpful over the years is in a lot of ways, St. John's is an apprenticeship in a certain kind of listening to texts and to people. So you read these texts in a very deep way. All of the classes are seminar-based. There's no lecture at all. So for our readers, say, say more about what a seminar approach is to, to, to a classroom, to a class. Absolutely. So basically, it's having a conversation. So you do have uh, a tutor. They don't even call them teachers at St. John's because they want to emphasize that you're all part of this conversation. Okay. Uh, So the tutor will guide you through a structured discussion about it. uh, And it's very much you're all creating this conversation together. Mm. And in that context, I think you just really learn the importance of listening well to other people and listening well to a text. And I've just found that that set a pattern of something I want to strive for my whole life. Mm. Uh, And it really gave me some training in what I was aspiring to as to how to listen to other people. And I think that's made me better at listening to scripture over the course of my life and better at loving my neighbor, right? Mm -hmm. Because when you really hear what your neighbor is saying, you're in much better shape to care for them well. Sure. That makes so much sense. I guess the third thing I would add to that is that I found the education has really grown with me over time. It wasn't just a matter of sort of storing up uh, a stack of facts or information. It was really a matter of a deep engagement with books that not only... I think transformed my character for the better at the time, but has really stuck with me. And I've gone back to it many times and found, oh, this text that meant so much to me then means even more to me now. And I've seen this other aspect of it in this new life experience. Uh, And I mentioned this to a friend from St. John's recently, and he said he'd had exactly the same experience of the books over time. And that was a wonderful thing to contemplate. Mm, Wow. That's so encouraging to hear your story and your journey. Uh, it also makes me a little bit sad that I didn't have the same journey. Uh, I've come to the same convictions and conclusions you have, but uh, but not in the way you have, and I'm sure not as deeply understanding those texts. So I came to faith later in high school, uh, in a public high school. And I was never exposed to uh, either in my family or the Christian community that I joined a value of great books. In fact, it was sort of assumed that, you know, the newer it is, the better it is because we keep learning and we keep advancing knowledge. And so why would you read that stuff? It's all out of date. And uh, and then I was I was introduced to C.S. Lewis. And he's got an article that he actually, I think, titled On the Reading of Old Books. And I remember reading that uh, and and having an aha moment because his argument is, you know, yeah, the folks who wrote old books don't get everything right. They got their own issues and, and uh, miss all kinds of things, but they don't miss the things we miss. And in our culture, there's certain things that we just assume are certain ways And reading old books helps us realize, no, there are other ways to see this and maybe on reflection, better ways to see this. And so that that started me and my journey to read old books, which 
I'm nowhere near where you are in terms of what I've been able to do. I haven't had, didn't have the opportunity to do a great books program or I didn't take it. Actually, I don't think I knew it, such a thing existed when I was in college, but I, I wish I would have at least known this was an option and the value of it to, to consider it. And that's why we're actually doing this podcast. So those in their high school years or just starting to their college years can at least know this is an option because it's, it's so valuable in these ways. And I'd like you to talk a little more about that in the real practical terms. What are some of the um, practical benefits? You know, we are so oriented and, and in some ways for good reasons to think about, okay, we go to college to be prepared for a profession. I can hear people saying, yeah, that's all fine and good, but how do you get a job? You know, I don't want to be a barista at Starbucks the rest of my life. What's the practical value of this program? How does it help you after you spend the time and money to get a job and make a living? Yeah, that is a really important question. Like, I love big philosophical ideas. I love reading for its own sake. But, you know, it's really important. College is a big financial investment and time investment. And it is really important to think about how will this set me up practically in life. Uh, I do have some ideas on making that work well. It is just really important to say that, unfortunately, it is actually a very difficult time to make a living in the humanities. And mm -hmm. most of my friends who are really smart and have wonderful uh, engagement with these ideas have kind of felt that at various points of their career as they've been trying to figure out how to have a practical life that includes these ideas. And so, you know, it's important to consider that. There are some strategies that you can consider. Um, one thing you can do is get some practical vocational training alongside a liberal arts education. So if you have a program that has a great books core plus other training, you can train in something very practical like a medical profession, uh, like nursing or becoming a doctor, and then also have this rich engagement with the texts as part of your general ed. You used another really important term that I want to make sure listeners understand. We use it all the time, but uh, you're using it in a very specific way, and I want you to define it, and that's a liberal arts education. Yes. Uh, so what I mean by that in this context is an education that's focused kind of on learning for its own sake, especially in terms of art and literature and history and other humanities subjects. And I believe it also kind of comes from these roots of thinking about what it means to be trained to live well with mm -hmm. liberty and as a member of a society where you have some freedom to choose and in a democracy to impact the society around you. And kind of the theory behind that term, as I understand it, is that this kind of training helps you grow in wisdom, helps you mm -hmm. become more able to approach uh, your responsibilities as a citizen and as a person in the world through this deep engagement. Mm -hmm. Now, there are plenty of other ways to learn wisdom. Uh, sure. Many people who didn't have the opportunity to study formally at all, also have wisdom that they've accumulated over the years. Absolutely, sure. But the idea is you can kind of commit to it in a certain way. Exactly. It was defined as liberal arts, having nothing to do with uh, political views, but simply uh, because it was the type of study that those who weren't tied to uh, working in the field each day to make a living could do. They were free. There was libris, freedom to study these things that didn't put food on, on the table tonight directly, but as you say, in the bigger scope of things, helps one to develop certain understandings and virtues and ways of living. Absolutely. Yeah. So is there anything else you want to say about the the, the practicalities of of finding a job after you do a program like this? Yeah, I would say, if, you know, you can choose sort of the almost two track educational approach I've just described, mm -hmm. where you get some training that will practically yield a job and you also spend some time with the liberal arts. That's a perfectly good strategy. It can be a little bit overwhelming depending, you know, how much homework is required by both. Sure. I would also say that 
many people who decide to commit to a career in the arts and humanities could start a little bit earlier on developing the practical skills. So for instance, uh, St. John's has a career office and they were happy along the way to connect me to alums or colleagues who might have ideas on how to pursue certain trajectories. Mm -hmm. And I just encourage people, you know, if you think you want a career in the arts and humanities, start that kind of conversation as soon as possible, Uh, you know, without getting stressed out. You can even start it when you're a freshman, right? Once you get yourself settled, Mm -hmm. talk to the career office, talk to people who have careers in it. Often your faculty members will know people and kind of start asking people, how did you make this work out practically? And what kind of experience should I be collecting so that I'm very hireable? I also really wish that somewhere along the way I had taken a few more courses on just sort of the practical business management of liberal arts uh, in terms of I wound up along the way doing a fair amount of freelance writing and things like that. And, Mm. you know, I figured it out. But uh, it would have been really nice, actually, to have had a few Mm -hmm. more courses on, oh, okay, when I ask someone for advice on this and they know the business end of it, what do they mean when they say this term or that term and (laughs) those kinds of things? So, (laughs) What is a spreadsheet anyway? I've heard of these things. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Uh, So I definitely (laughs) encourage that if you have access to it. Sure, sure. Good. So outline for us with your background, your uh, trajectory, having finished the program, looking back, everything you know, summarize some of the strengths of these programs and some of the potential challenges that you see. Yeah, I would say uh, the strengths are many. Uh, One would definitely be that it's really this apprenticeship in listening. It's also really an apprenticeship in a broad set of knowledge that interconnects. And it's really good training in starting to see some of the ways God designed the world to interconnect, uh, which is really satisfying. And it can be very good training for caring well for a community over time in your program. I found it to be that way, uh, Mm. where I made many really good friendships and the conversational approach of the classes really made that easy to do, right? You were kind of already having a rich conversation. And so when you spilled over to the coffee shop after class, it wasn't very hard to continue that. Mm. Uh, And so I think there are some really wonderful strengths there. I would say for me, it also gave me certain kinds of confidence. Uh, So I went on to do a PhD uh, at the University of Delaware in Renaissance literature. And I found when we were approaching these very complicated texts from the 15 and 1600s, a lot of the time I understood what was going on because there were all these references to Mm -hmm. books I'd read at St. John's. And there was a certain kind of confidence in that. Uh, I'd also say it's just a lot of fun in a certain way. Uh, There's something really fun about being able to share in those references and make jokes about them with friends and things like that. Uh, Someone has described St. John's as the ultimate inside joke factory. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't do it full justice. Uh, But there is something that is uh, fun in a really delightful way about sharing that tradition with other people, I think, and and being able to enjoy it in a lighthearted way. Mm -hmm. So I think that All of those things are major strengths. You know, I would say one downside is you probably will not come out of a liberal arts undergraduate of the great books with a very clear career path unless you're absolutely set on teaching at a classical school or something Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. And many of the career paths that you can come out with are a little bit of a challenge in terms of supporting a family or something like that. And so It does require what we've been talking about in terms of practical strategies. Mm -hmm. Unless you know that you want to go on into graduate studies in a field in the humanities, like philosophy or history or literature, then it would be perfect, right? I found it to be a wonderful preparation for that. I I think it is a really good springboard uh, for graduate study. One thing I do recommend if you know you want to go on 
it, and you're also doing a great books approach is to spend a little bit of time acquainting yourself with uh, some of the research paradigms in the field you're interested in and some of the more recent theories that people have developed about history or literature. St. John's just doesn't do that. And they're very upfront that, you know, the the point of this is to have this deep immersion in the original texts and to talk about it. And I love that. It's really valuable. But most graduate programs are also going to have extensive uh, research and theory components. And it helps to go in with at least a little bit of an insight. I felt like I played catch up a little bit on those things. Mm. Again, you know, it worked out, but <laughs> it's not a bad idea. Yeah, that's really helpful. I know for our listeners, that's a whole nother set of questions that that's going to raise uh, in a very summary way. Tell us how one would go about exploring those things. Yeah, I would say one of the best ways to do it would be to, uh, you could either network with faculty members who are teaching you great books, but are in touch with colleagues at other schools that have a more theory and history-based approach. Uh, or you could also kind of look at the other nearby universities, which will tend to have, uh, you know, colloquium series on the field areas that faculty are teaching and things like that. They're often open to the public. You could go to one or two of those and and ask a faculty member there, you know, could I email you for a little bit of advice on what to read in this? Uh, and the Career Center at St. John's was also very helpful in making connections for me when I wanted to apply to grad school. Um, that's probably also in itself another podcast that sure. you may have already hosted. but Not um, yet, but maybe I'll have you back on that one. That's, that's really important too, yeah. I'd be delighted. Good. Well, anything else in terms of strengths and weaknesses you have, you've observed we ought to be talking about? So I think for some people I've known who went to a great book school, it can be an overwhelming experience in certain ways that aren't about whether you're suited for reading these books, right? But could make it feel that way temporarily. So I actually really love, as long as it's a friendly environment, a conversation where everybody's trying out an idea and they're not sure if they are if they actually have an opinion on this yet. They're just sort of improvising and figuring sure. it out. But for some friends I've talked to who, you know, tried a great books program and maybe transferred to something else, that entirely conversational style was actually kind of stressful because they wanted to think about the books. They had plenty of ideas, but they didn't want to have to produce verbal statements about the books very mm -hmm. rapidly, which sometimes that conversational environment mm -hmm. kind of privileges, right? Um, that's not to say you can't do something like this if you're a quieter personality you certainly can but it's something to think about you know do mm -hmm. you like trying out ideas verbally or do you process them in writing or something like that and that might affect whether you want this kind of environment or a different mode of approaching those classic texts sure i do know for some people also that you know you're reading some of the most famous books that we have written by really brilliant people and for some folks, the encounter with doubt and skepticism in that experience can be a stressful experience uh, in terms of their faith. I personally really feel that doubt approached with honesty and thoughtfulness can deeply strengthen your faith. And so for me, the periods of my life where I've read a skeptical author and thought, oh, wow, this person actually does have a really good point. I should think about this more. Mm -hmm. I've actually really strengthened my faith in Christ over time. And so I think it can really do that for people. But, you know, I'd, I'd say be prepared for that. And uh, I found a really wonderful and rich community of Christians and people interested in Christian faith who wanted to read and talk together even outside of class. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was uh, an incredibly enriching experience. But, you know, if you, as in any college setting, if you've recently uprooted from most of your communities and your previous experience, and you're just encountering these things anew, you know, that that can be a, a difficult experience at first. Uh, though mm -hmm. I, I guess I always come back to Sayers in general and in this conversation. Uh, but somewhere she also said that, 
people who really believe in a thing aren't afraid to question it, uh, that you trust that it will come out stronger once you have. Mm -hmm. And she applies this to faith in Christ. And I, I found that to be true. Yeah, that's that's so helpful. So you've already talked a little bit about this, but uh, bring us up to the the present. How has your great books education really grown with you over the years? And and uh, how do you see it continuing to shape you even today as you look into the future? Well, that's such a good question. Uh, there's such a wealth of examples. I will try to <laughs> be relatively <laughs> concise. One thing it helped do for me, uh, kind of revisiting your question about the Middle Ages and uh, what C.S. Lewis said about what we can learn from books from the past, I think it prepared me really well for more education where I also dug into kind of the historical circumstances of authors. And I think that really deepened my faith because there are ways that people from the past see it differently, not in a conflictual way, really, but just like a difference of emphasis that are really mm -hmm. helpful. So I think one thing that really stood out to me and um, the great books background was a good springboard to this. Uh, in my PhD, I worked on these two poets named John Donne and George Herbert, mm -hmm. and they were both preachers in the Church of England in their time and also poets. And they're kind of known for just really startling images about faith uh, that you read them and you're like, this thing is outrageous. Why did you choose this crazy metaphor? Like what? What's, what's an example? So I think maybe one I've spent a lot of time with that I really love is uh, Herbert has a really beautiful poem called The Agony. Uh, and in it, um, I encountered the poem a long time before I knew this history, and it was still very moving, but it got better and better the more of the history I learned. In it, he, I don't even know how to, yeah, explaining it briefly to a modern <laughs> audience is weird. He basically compares Christ's body on the cross to a bunch of grapes that are being pressed in a wine press, uh, mm. as though we're sort of drinking the wine at communion. And, you know, Herbert was a Protestant and so for him that takes a little bit different shape than it would in like a, a Roman Catholic setting. Sure. But there's this deep sense that he's talking about this way in which Christ's pain becomes our nourishment uh, because Christ has chosen to do that for us. And the way that he renders it is sort of like really startling uh, and there are also, you know, there are other contemporary images where there's similar imagery around bread, where it imagines Christ's body as like a grain of wheat that's ground and, and thrashed and baked into bread to be eaten. And these images just seemed wild to me when I first encountered them. I mm -hmm. was like, this is such a strange way to think about this. Uh, and then I discovered they're really traditional, like Christians have been talking about this for hundreds of years. And I found their strangeness really moving, right? Uh, like they made me see anew something I believed as mm -hmm. long as I can remember, right? And mm -hmm. see anew how, how startling it is that God would do that for us, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that is one of the big take-homes for me from visiting these older texts and understanding a little more of the context is often they reintroduce you to what you already know, but in a much richer way. And I, I think I experience it differently. Mm -hmm. uh, like if you write down my beliefs on paper, they don't look very different after and before reading that Herbert poem, but my experience of it is much, much richer. Mm -hmm. And you're tapping into something that's a much richer understanding of text and texts. Mm -hmm. You know, we're in an age where the soundbite rules, the social media revolution has led to less and less engagements of texts in more sustained ways. And uh, with that, longer writings to, to really think about and, and engage. I wonder if you might comment as somebody trained in engaging 
longer texts and more sustained ways, how you see this new reality that's all about us now with social media, maybe some positives, but maybe some of the challenges you think we as a culture face as a result? Yeah, you know, it's a really interesting question. I think on the positive side, I actually do see in many social media engagements with poetry or even with longer books like the 19th century novel, that you do get really interesting TikTok videos and uh, other social media posts where someone has really engaged deeply with the text and then is giving you really, it is almost literary criticism, right? But in a really fun and approachable way. You better define literary criticism. Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, Literary criticism is basically just the effort to write about literature in a way Mm. that's illuminating for other people. Uh, Unfortunately, the word in English criticism sounds like it's about complaining. Uh, Right. (laughs) uh, That's not the goal, although it does happen occasionally. Sure. Uh, So, yeah, you get these very interesting uh, commentaries on text by people who are clearly very knowledgeable and it's really approachable in a way, right? You don't have to be a professor at Harvard to be able to make a cool TikTok that people could be very interested in about literature. Uh, And so I think there are a lot of good things there. Um, You know, I would say that we can all benefit from long sustained attention to a thing and we can all benefit from uh, sort of a Sabbath from our screens every now and then. I've talked to, you know, people who don't even really practice any sort of religious faith who have started taking a tech Sabbath and have been really interested to hear from me about kind of the history of thinking about Sabbath and Christianity and Judaism. And I think that it's always good to keep in mind uh, you might need some time away from your screen and there's something truly delightful about a hard copy book. And it, they both allow different and interesting kinds of thought, I guess. Mm, okay. There's probably also a long and fascinating conversation we could have about the printing press and the Reformation uh, and the rise of social media in certain ways, doing the same things. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a vast oversimplification, but also mm-hmm. kind of true, where it allowed so many more people to get their ideas out there sure. and connect sure. with others. Also, it's not always good, right? You read some of the early printed books and think, wow, why did they publish <laughs> this? Right. Uh, Would have been better had they had that thought before Gutenberg. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I think the short version is there are some amazing things with text there, but uh, in our modern social media moment, but there's also a value in just sort of older mm-hmm. modes of engaging mm-hmm. with books and with text as well. Mm-hmm. Like in most things, there's a balance, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Hannah, this has been a rich conversation. I've really enjoyed so many of your insights. As we draw to a close, is there anything else you want to make sure we touch on? I would say that I just really do look back on that two years at St. John's as one of the richest experiences of my life. uh, And one that, as I said earlier, has really grown with me and, you know, not just stayed with me in a static way, but feels like it's sort of become what I needed across time to navigate other things as well. Uh, And so I think that's. That's one thing I'd love to say. The other thing I'd love to say is, you know, you might decide that the full-on all I do is read great books for four years approach is not for you for practical reasons or because you're really interested in something like current lab science that isn't as big an emphasis. Although the undergrads at St. John's do historical experiments as well. I missed out on that as a master's student. Uh, but they actually do some of the famous experiments from the history of science. I presume the ones that uh, are not at risk of uh, violating all the college liability and safety policies, <laughs> no uh, standing out with metal in lightning storms and things like that. Right. But you may decide that, uh, you know, that that's not for you, but that doesn't mean these books aren't for you. And it doesn't mean there's no other way to engage with this. Uh, In my work with Chesterton House, which is a Christian study center at Cornell, 
One thing that we've done the past two years is to offer alumni seminars on great books. Uh, And we do this in a no homework format. So we pick a short poem or a couple of pages of Augustine and we read it together on the spot in a Zoom conversation. And then we have this kind of seminar where we ask our questions and work through a text the way that we would at St. John's. And people from many different careers and walks of life and age ranges have participated in that mm-hmm. and really brought so much to it and gotten a lot out of it. Mm-hmm. So I'd say there may be some other way for this to be part of your life, even if it's not what you major in. So I, I, I would definitely encourage that. It's interesting you mentioned that. I'm aware of a movement to have great books, great book discussion groups start in communities. And uh, I'm fascinated by that. And from the folks I know who've been in these reading groups that really literally read through the great books and talk about them over coffee in a home uh, are are thrilled to be able to do this and are learning so much. I'll actually link to one I'm aware of in the show notes, but it does seem that there's a growing awareness of and value of the great books, even in this in the broader culture. I think so. And and I definitely encourage people to get connected to whatever mode of great books engagement you can do in your life. Uh, and if, you know, if you feel called to it, I think it's a great major as well. I really, really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. And where, as we come to a close, can listeners go to, to learn more about this? So you can look up directly the websites of some of the schools that I've mentioned, like St. John's and Biola. Mm -hmm. Um, I believe that there's probably also a lot of information on similar ideas at the high school level in some of the classical Christian school settings. I can send you some email or some uh, web addresses for that. I don't remember off the top of my head. Yeah, Um, please do. I'll put those in the show notes as well. Great. Um, So those are good places. Uh, Often, too, many people do know someone in their church setting or something like that who has taught in a classical school at some point or uh, maybe is headed to a classical school. And then also you can email the schools that do this and ask if a faculty member or a student would take a little time and write you two or three emails if you have questions. And I think most of them will be delighted to arrange that. Great. Next steps. Very helpful. Well, Hannah, thanks for taking some time and sharing your experience, both uh, when you did the program and all of the ways since then, it's really helped you flourish. Appreciate your wisdom and insight and the ways God is using you now as a result of what began or at least was continued during your your time in a great books program. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on for this conversation. That brings us to the end of this edition of the College Faith Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this conversation at the intersection of Christian conviction and higher education. Be sure to check out today's show notes at collegefaith.net slash podcasts where you can find more information and links to the resources we discussed. If you found this podcast helpful, please help spread the word by liking my College Faith Facebook page at facebook.com slash collegefaith and pass this show on to others who may enjoy hearing our conversation. Please do visit our sponsor, Global Scholars, to help equip Christian professors to be salt and light for Christ on their campuses. Until next time, this is Stan Wallace encouraging you to love the Lord your God with both heart and mind during the university years and beyond.